My pleasure to welcome you as we've gathered together to worship this morning. And uh, uh, welcome John and Kathy, my friends from Columbus. And glad to have you all worship with us today. He's also an Army Reserve Chaplain and appreciate your your service and uh, uh, to our Lord and to our, our country. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you all for gathering to worship. And this morning we are going to uh, look at uh, Paul's uh, encounter with the risen, exalted Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And uh, in Revelation chapter 1, John has a similar vision, I believe, to what um, Paul had on the road to Damascus. And so our call to worship this morning will be from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, we read these words. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We've gathered together this morning to worship the one who lives, who is dead and behold is now alive forevermore, and who has the keys of Hades and death. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you praise this morning because you are the living, exalted Lord. Lord, we give you praise and we give you thanks for who you are and what you have accomplished for us on the cross and in your empty tomb and at your place right now at the right hand of the Father. Lord Jesus, we give you praise and honor and glory. And it's our prayer that by your grace and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be the type of worshipers after which you seek, those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we pray that you would enable and empower us this morning to, uh, to give you honor and glory in all that we say and all that we do. And Lord, we pray that we would see you, that we would behold your glory. Lord, that we would be confronted with our sinfulness and brought to conviction and confession. And that we would be humbled and broken by your glory and then drawn to repentance and faith to receive the cleansing that you provided for us on the cross. 
so that we might stand before You with clean hands and pure hearts and offer You worship. May You be exalted and glorified in this place, and may we be transformed uh, to be more like You. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnal this morning and turn with me to hymn 300. Continue to worship this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Text this morning will be Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But the, uh, I guess the account actually starts in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, where we read, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And then as we've looked through chapter 8, we saw the results of that, of that persecution, of that uh, uh, ravishing, uh, the shredding of the church. The saints scattered out of Jerusalem. And they went, and wherever they went, they preached the Word of God. They preached the Gospel. And then Luke has shown us the revival that broke out in Samaria uh, through the ministry of Philip, one of the seven. And we also saw uh, the first African convert in Acts chapter 8. And then today, the, the Luke returns to, the, uh, to focus on Saul and the persecution that he was bringing upon the church and then his encounter with the risen, exalted, glorified Lord on the road to Damascus. And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for your, your perfect Word, your inerrant, infallible Word to us. And Lord, we're so thankful that you're a God who speaks and who seeks the lost. We're so thankful for the Son of Man who came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Lord, we thank you for uh, this record of the conversion of Saul. And Lord, we pray that as we study this together this morning, that Your Holy Spirit would lead us into truth, Lord, that You would help us to hear, to understand. Lord, that by Your grace we would believe, and that by Your grace we would uh, walk in truth. And Lord, we pray that You would teach us this morning, that Your Spirit would draw us to Yourself, and that Your Spirit would work within us to be conformed to the image of Your Son, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. And so we 
saw, and as we've been going through the book of Acts, that, uh, uh, that Saul was there giving approval to the death of Stephen. As Stephen was being stoned to death, those who were committing the murder, committing the execution, laid their garments at the feet of Saul, and he was there giving his approval. And then at the end of uh, that, at the death of Stephen, a huge wave of persecution broke out against the church, led by Saul. And Luke tells us that Saul made havoc of the church. He was shredding the church. A, a, a word that is used to describe a wild animal, a wild boar, going through a, a garden and just destroying everything in, uh, in his path, everything in his midst, or, a, or an enemy army going into a city and, and pillaging and plundering that city after conquering it. And so Saul is committed to the destruction of the church. He believes that he is doing God's work. By destroying this sect, this, this, this new movement that he felt was a threat to his religion and his way of life. And he felt like he was doing God's work by trying to destroy every single follower of Jesus. And arresting them whether they were men or women and committing them to prison. And we see as we read through that Saul was not content just to drive the name of Jesus and the followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem, but now he was going to chase them wherever they went. And so Saul is determined to destroy the church, the followers of Jesus Christ. And so we see as we, we, we look at this event, we see Saul radically transformed in Acts chapter 9. And we look at this passage, we look, we, you've heard people talk of a Damascus Road experience. And we, and we look at the conversion of Saul, the first thing that we've got to say is this is not normative, and Saul was not a normal guy. You know, Saul, Saul uh, believes himself to be the chief of sinners. He is committed to, to persecute, to destroy the name of Jesus, and Saul will be the last of the apostles. He describes himself as an apostle born out of due time. And so his conversion is unique. It's something that's not replicated. Many, uh, you know, some folks have maybe doubted their own conversion because they never had a Damascus Road experience. But we've got to understand that this is a descriptive event describing what happened to Saul one time to one man in one place. And the one man who would be the apostle to the Gentiles, the one man who would be the apostle born out of due time. And so this is a unique experience. There's no other conversion like this recorded in the Scripture and probably not in, in, uh, in, in the history of the church. This is uh, a unique event that Luke describes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But there are aspects of this conversion that are true for all believers at all places at all times. There, there is a Damascus Road experience that we all have and we'll look at these events and we'll look at the, the transformation of Saul on the road to Damascus as we study this text together. So the first thing that we note is that Saul had a plan. Saul had everything planned out. Saul was determined to destroy the followers of Jesus Christ. He was shredding the church, doing everything that he could to stop this new movement, to stop the followers of Christ, not just to drive them out of Jerusalem, but to chase them wherever they went. And so he, he went to the, to the high priest. He was breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was uh, every breath, every, every fiber of his being, his total objective was to destroy the church. He was breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest, and he was going to pursue them as far as 150 miles. 
Damascus is about 150 miles from Jerusalem, and so he went and got letters of authorization, permission to go to Damascus, to travel uh, 150 miles, and anybody he saw following Jesus to arrest them, to bind them, and to bring them back to Jerusalem, probably so they could stand trial and maybe even meet the same fate as Stephen, be executed for blasphemy. And so Paul's got a plan. He's got it all planned out. Or Saul. Saul's got a plan. He's got a, 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 a mission. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to gather with him some men and probably, you know, probably a, a large caravan of people to go and to arrest these people and bring them back to Jerusalem. Probably members of the temple police are with him. And they travel 150 miles, probably took about a, about a week. But Saul's got a plan. He is doing what he believes to be right. He believes that he is serving the Lord, that he is doing the work of God to destroy these people. And I think it's interesting, kind of an aside, the the way that the believers are described. There's really three terms here in Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9 that describes the the people of God. Acts chapter 3, the word church is used. He made havoc of the church, and that word church means the assembly. The, the people who were following Jesus and were called to Him in repentance and faith and were also, as we've seen in the beginning of Acts, called to one another, called to community. The church is to be an assembly, a gathering of believers, those who have been called out of the world and called together, and they're called to gather together, to assemble together, so that they might encourage one another and stir up good works in each other and stand together against the opposition. The church is an assembly, a gathering of the people of God. And, uh, uh, and so, a couple of uh, points of application, you know... Uh, Online church is a contradiction of terms. Church is gathering together, the gathering of God's people. We must assemble. We must gather together. And so Paul is trying to make havoc of the church, to shred the church, to destroy the church. But the other, the other title that we see here in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 9, is disciples. Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now that word disciples means learning believers. In the Gospels, the word disciples usually means speaks of the twelve, those that Jesus had gathered to Himself and, and uh, uh, brings them. They, they follow Him in His ministry and He trains them uh, uh, in His ministry. They watch Him ministry and then they share ministry with Him and then He sends them out and they come report to Him. And then uh, uh, these are the, the twelve, the followers of Jesus, the disciples, those who believe in Jesus and who have come to learn from Him and to be instructed uh, to, to carry on His ministry after His death and resurrection and exaltation. But in the book of Acts, the twelve become called the apostles. The twelve are the apostles in the book of Acts primarily, and all believers in Jesus Christ are now called disciples as we see in this text. All believers in Jesus Christ are to be learning believers. They believe in Jesus, and they are constantly learning. If, uh, you know, if you just wanted to talk about believers, there would have been a word he could use just means believers. Or if it was just learners, there's a word that he could use for students. But this word disciples means they believe in Jesus Christ, and they are learning from Him. They are growing in their faith. We've seen in Acts they are committed to the apostles' doctrine, and they're constantly learning. As believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be constantly learning and growing in our knowledge and our faith of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, here they're called the disciples. The third term that the apostles are, or that the believers, the church is called, are uh, those of the way in verse 2. Saul goes and he wants to see if he can find any that are of the way. 
men and women. And uh, that's what the, the believers of the church is kind of called in the book of Acts until uh, we get to Antioch, and it's in Antioch that the believers are first called Christians. But here they are called those of the way. And probably this is a reference to Jesus' word to His apostles, to the disciples on the last night of His earthly life, when He told His disciples, you know, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And you know where I'm going, you know the way. And then Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we possibly know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so Jesus told his followers, he is the way. He is the way to the Father. He did not come to make the way. He came to be the way through his atoning death, his glorious resurrection. Jesus is the way, the only way to the Father. And so certainly an appropriate name for those who are following Jesus, trusting in Jesus, believing that He is the only way to God. And, and certainly there's another reference that Jesus, uh, that, that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount, that the, the, other, the beginning of His ministry, He also mentioned the way that leads to life, narrows the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and few there are that find it. So these are those who have found the way to life through their repentance of sin and trust in Jesus Christ. And Saul's probably not using this term in a, in a uh, complimentary way. He's probably using it in a derogatory way. These are the followers of the way, and right after Jesus said those words, he went the way of the cross. He was accused of blasphemy and convicted of being a traitor, and he was lifted up to die in humiliation and in, in, uh, in agony and distress. And so probably this term would be used to make fun of those believers, those who, those who are going the way of a cross and who are following one who is executed for blasphemy and for treason. And so Saul's got a plan. Saul's going to destroy the disciples of Jesus Christ. He is going to destroy those who are of the way. He's going to destroy those believers that are assembling together in the church. He's got a plan. And he's got authority to carry out that plan. And he's got men to help him. And he is on the way to Damascus with a plan. He's got it all planned out. He's going his way. He's doing his thing. He's doing what he believes is right. And so we see on the road to Damascus, Saul had a plan. And then second, on the road to Damascus, we see that Saul saw Jesus. Verse 3, as he journeyed, he came near to Damascus. He's almost reached his objective. He's almost where he is going to arrest these people with letters of authorization to take these believers. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground. Now this is an important event. It's recorded three times for us in the book of Acts. Here in, in chapter 9, and then in, again in, in Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26, this event is recorded. And, and here, Luke just says that Saul suddenly saw a light that shone around him from heaven. doesn't specifically tell us that he saw Jesus. But as we see Ananias later in the chapter speak about this, he tells Saul that Jesus who appeared to you 
has sent me to you that you may receive your sight. And Barnabas also says later in this chapter that, that Saul had seen the Lord on the road. And in Paul's own writings, in Paul's own testimony, he confesses to have seen the glorified, exalted Lord Jesus. He claims to be an eyewitness of the resurrection and an apostle as one born out of due time, an apostle to the Gentiles directly sent by Jesus. And so here on the road to Damascus, we see that Saul saw Jesus. He saw the exalted glorified, risen, and living Lord. And Saul also says later in the book of Acts that this happened right at midday, right at noon, when the the, the Middle Eastern sun is high and bright in the sky. And when Saul saw Jesus, the light of the Son of Man, outshone the sun and drove Him to the ground. And Saul saw Jesus risen, glorified and exalted. Probably saw very similar to what Stephen saw as he was being stoned to death. He looked and he saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, and, and, and Stephen was executed for saying that. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, Stephen was executed and now, now Saul commits the same crime. He sees the Lord Jesus, the exalted Jesus. And maybe he saw very much what John saw in Revelation chapter 1. One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band. His head, his hair is white like wool, as white as snow. Eyes like a flame of fire. Feet like fire, like, like fine brass is refined in a furnace. And the voice like the sound of rushing waters. His right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword and his countenance like the sun shining in its strength. Saul, Saul, Jesus. And he saw Him exalted and glorified. And, and you know, most of the time, I think most of us, when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus in His humiliation. And that's right and that's good. It's in His humiliation that He becomes our Savior. He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself of His glory. He came to earth. There was nothing about Him to, uh, uh, to attract people to Him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was in His humiliation. He humbled Himself and took upon Himself to form the appearance of a, of a servant, a, a, an ordinary man, and He humbled Himself even further, even unto death, and death on the cross. And we, we think of Jesus on the cross and the agony as He experiences death, as He experienced the full force of God's wrath being poured out on Him. The pain, the agony, the crown of thorns, the nail in His hands and His feet. We think of Jesus often in His humiliation, and that's important because in His humiliation He becomes our Savior as He dies for our sins. But we also need to think about Jesus in His exaltation, in His glorification. God raised Him from the dead to show that sacrifice was accepted, and now He's been highly exalted. Seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. And so what does Jesus look like right now? He's clothed with a garment down to His feet. With a golden band around His chest. With hair white like wool, as white as snow. Eyes like a flame of fire. Feet like fine brass. The voice of many waters. And out of His mouth a two-edged sword. We need to think about Jesus in His glory and in His exaltation as our 
faithful high priest before the throne of God, ensuring that he does not lose a single one of his people. The Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. The one who died is also exalted and glorified and living and having the keys of life and death. All authority, glory, and honor. And that's what Saul sees on the road to Damascus. He's got a plan. He's doing his thing. He's got it all mapped out. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's going to do. But on the way, he sees the Lord. And everything changes. He saw a light shine around him from heaven and he fell to the ground. But not only did he see the Lord, but he heard the Lord. On the road to Damascus, Saul heard Jesus. He saw Jesus and then he heard Jesus. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul heard Jesus. And Saul knows enough of the Old Testament. He's a student of the, one of the most respected rabbis. He was a Pharisee. He, he knew the Old Testament very well and he knew that what he'd seen, he'd seen God, but he didn't know His name. And so he says, Who are you, Lord? Imagine his horror when the one that he has seen, clothed with garment, his chest girded with gold, his hair white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, out of his mouth a two-edged sword. Imagine his horror when he hears, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, it wasn't enough for Saul just to see Jesus. He heard Jesus, and Jesus confronted him and brought him conviction of sin. He was confronted with God's glory, and then he was convicted and confronted with his own sinfulness. The Word of Jesus rebukes and corrects, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You know, you read through this. Who's Saul persecuting? Saul's persecuting the church. He's making havoc of the church. Entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He's breathing out threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he's going to bind those who are of the way. Believers in Jesus, but Jesus says... I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And so there's an important truth here of the union between uh, believers in Christ and Christ Himself. The union between Christ and His bride. The union between Christ and His church. If you persecute the church, you are persecuting Jesus. You speak bad about the church, you're speaking bad about Jesus. You hate the church, you hate Jesus. Because the union of God and Jesus and His people is such that if you love the church, you love Jesus. If you love Jesus, you love His church, you love His bride. And so Jesus confronts him with his sin, brings conviction. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then my translation says it's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know what? <laughs> Sin is foolish 
a goad, uh, some of you ranchers, you might know this better than me. A goad is a, uh, in this culture, a sharp stick with a metal spike on it. And what's it used to do? It's used to motivate the ox to go where he doesn't want to go, right? <laughs> you, 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 you prick the, the ox with the goad. And if the ox is smart, he's going to go where the goad tells him to go. But a foolish ox will kick against the goad. And when the ox kicks against the goad, is he going to hurt the goad? Is he going to hurt that metal spike? When the ox kicks against the goad, is he going to hurt the rancher that's goading him? No, who's the ox going to hurt when he kicks against the goad? He's going to hurt him own self. That goad just goes deeper into his flesh or into his feet. Sin is foolish. And when you sin... You will pay more than you want to pay. You will do harm to your own self. When, you, when Saul was persecuting the church, he wasn't hurting Jesus. He was hurting himself. And so Saul had a plan on the road to Damascus. But when he got near to accomplishing his objective, he saw the Lord. He saw in Him all His glory. And then he also heard the Lord, the Word of the Lord, convicting him of his sin, confronting him with his sinfulness, And then third, we see on the road to Damascus that Saul submitted to the Lord. Saul submitted to the Lord. He had a plan. He was doing his own thing. He thought he was serving God and trying to destroy these people. But on the way, he saw the risen, exalted, glorified Jesus and he was confronted with the sin. If you're persecuting my church, you are persecuting me. The one that he was trying to destroy, he now saw as fully God. And he was convicted of his sinfulness. And then he submitted to the Lord. Verse 6, He trembling and astonished, amazed and shaken with fear, made beside himself. He said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Saul had a plan. He knew what he was going to do. He knew where he was going to go. He knew what the result would be. And he had letters of authority giving him permission to do it. But when he saw the Lord and was convicted with his sin, his plan changed. And he submitted himself to do whatever the Lord told him to do. Lord, what would you want me to do? And you know, that's an important truth for us. We've all got a plan. You know, we've kind of mapped out our, 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 our course we mapped out where we want to go and what we want to do and how we want to, things to come out. And we want the Lord Jesus to go with us and bless our plans and make sure everything works out the way that we want us to. Uh, but when we see the Lord and we're convicted of our sin, we see our glory and we see our unworthiness, we need to come to a place of submitment. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? And so on the road to Damascus, Saul submitted to the Lord. He allowed his plans to be changed. And to do whatever the Lord, the risen, exalted, glorified Lord, fully God, fully human, glorified man, whatever he told him to do, that's what Saul would do. He submitted to the Lord on the road to Damascus. And the Lord told him, Arise, go to the city. (laughs) You want to go to Damascus? Go to Damascus. And you will be told what to do. So the Lord didn't tell him exactly what to do. He didn't tell him the end. And so Saul submitted to the Lord. And then uh, next, 
I forgot what number we're on. <laughs> but next, he was humbled by the Lord. Saul was proud. Saul was self-confident. Saul was absolutely convinced that he was doing the right thing, that he was serving God. Saul was zealous, committed, boastful, confident that he would go and accomplish his purpose and his plan. He believed he knew what was right, but now we see Saul humbled. He submitted to the Lord. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said, go to the city and you will be told what you must do. Your plan has changed. And instead of you making your own plan, some no-name, unheard-of person that's never studied at the seat of Gamaliel, one that's not of means or of influence, somebody's going to come tell you what to do, Saul. And you're going to have to wait, you're going to have to be patient, and you're going to have to do what this no-name person comes and tells you to do. Instead of plotting your own course, making your own plans, you will be told what to do, but you've got to wait. And so Paul, Saul was humbled, and, and, and the man journeyed with him. They stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anyone. And then verse 8, we, we again see humility. Saul, Saul rose from the ground. And when his eyes were open, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. He couldn't even make his own way. And so he's humbled. He's, he, he sees his total dependence. He's been broken. This proud man was broken and humbled. This boastful man, this self-confident man was made totally and utterly dependent upon others. They had to lead him by the hand. He was going to go to Damascus and bind people and bring them back to Jerusalem so they'd be put on trial for their death and executed. And now he had to be led. Couldn't see. Totally dependent. Totally broken. Totally humbled. So in this passage we see that Christ was glorified and Saul was broken. And they led him into the city. And for three days, he saw nothing. He saw nothing with his eyes, but I am sure in his mind there was permanently that vision of the last thing that he had seen. That bright light. And one like the Son of Man with a garment down to His feet, with His chest girded with a golden band, His hair as white as wool, as white as snow, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like fine brass, and out of His mouth a double-edged sword, and in His hand seven stars. For three days, all he saw was the last thing he saw. The glorified, exalted Jesus. And all of this made Saul the man that Paul would become. Because on the road to Damascus, 
Christ was glorified and the chief of sinners was broken. Saul had a plan on the road to Damascus. He was on the road to Damascus because he had a plan. But on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus and was confronted and convicted of his sin. He submitted to Jesus, Lord, what would you have me do? And he was broken. He was humbled by the Lord Jesus. And so there's certainly application for us. You know, like I said, we've planned out our lives. We, we've got retirement planned. We know what we're going to do after retirement, where we're going to live. I'm going to die in Dorsey. We've got that all planned out. Making our way. Hoping that Jesus will approve of our plan and even bless it and bring success, right? Saul was on the road to Damascus because he had a plan. But on the, on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus and everything changed. He saw the exalted, glorified Jesus. And, and I believe that we, we all need a fresh view of Jesus. We need to see the glorified, exalted Lord. And, and you know, I read at the call to worship when John saw the Lord, what was John told? Write in a book what you see. So how do we gaze upon the glory of God? We gaze upon the glory of Christ in the book that He has given, the book that has been written. You know, Jesus could choose to appear to all of us like this, like He did to, to Isaiah, like He did to Saul, like He did to John, but, but mostly Jesus has ordained that we will gaze upon His glory in this book that has been written. We need to gaze upon Jesus in His humiliation because that's where He becomes His Savior, our Savior. But we also need to gaze upon Jesus in His glory and His exaltation. And when Isaiah saw the glory of God, he said, Here am I, send me. When Saul saw the glory of Christ, he said, What would you have me to do? When John saw the glory of Christ, he fell down and worshipped and heard the message of being an overcomer. And share that message with the seven churches. Because Jesus is glorified. Jesus is a warrior. Jesus is a Savior. Jesus is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And He will not lose a single one of His people. No matter what circumstances come, no matter how difficult things may be, Jesus is going to save and deliver and rescue and resurrect every single one that the Father has given to Him. His bride will be presented to Him perfect and whole, not missing a single body part. And so when things are hard, we need a fresh vision of Jesus glorified and exalted, victorious. And we need to hear Jesus the words of Jesus recorded for us. The doctrine of the apostles that brings confrontation. Teaches us what we ought to believe. That rebukes us, reproves us, corrects us, and trains us in righteousness. We need to be convicted by the power of the Word of God, the words of Christ. Showing us our unworthiness, our sinfulness. Calling us to repentance and faith to receive the cleansing that Jesus provided for us. We need to see the Lord. We need to hear the Lord. And we need to be submitted to the Lord. We need to all say, Lord, what would You have me to do? What would You have me to do?
Submit to His will. And finally, we need to be broken. See, in our unworthiness, our sinfulness, and see in the depth of God's grace, God's love, nothing we could do to save ourselves dead in our trespasses and sin, unworthy, sinful people, dependent upon God's amazing grace. We all sinned against God. We deserve nothing from Him but His wrath and judgment. We don't deserve Him to help us accomplish our objectives or our plans. All we deserve is to be swept into hell for all of eternity because of our sinfulness. But God in His great grace became a man in Christ Jesus. He humbled Himself even unto death, even death on a cross. And God has raised Him from the dead, highly exalted Him, and now calls us to turn and believe. Not trust in ourselves, our good works, any ritual, any ceremony, but to trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation, recognizing that we are sinners and we are in need of forgiveness, we're in need of grace. Humbled on the road to Damascus. And then finally, we need to love the Lord's church. Saul was trying to destroy the church. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Because if you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you're going to love His bride. You're going to love the church. And you're not going to forsake the assembling of yourself together. We're going to meet together and stir up each other to good works. And encourage one another. And speak the Word to one another. Because we have seen Jesus, He's called us into relationship with Himself, and He's called us into relationship with one another. Saul had a plan. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus was glorified. Saul was broken. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're so thankful for Your grace toward us in Christ Jesus, Lord. And we thank You for this vision of the exalted, glorified Lord, our Savior Jesus. Our great, sympathetic High Priest. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. The Lion of Judah. A mighty warrior, a righteous judge a Savior, and a Deliverer. And God, I pray that in the hard times, the difficult circumstances of our life, Lord, that You would give us the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to gaze upon the glory of Jesus as is recorded for us in the Scriptures. And may we be strengthened and encouraged and fortified by that vision of the exalted Lord. Lord, we confess so often we become complacent and we become comfortable and casual in our, in our, our, our worship and our church attendance. Lord, we just maybe do it out of habit or we do it out of, out of uh, tradition or we do it out of some sense of duty or obligation. God, when we see afresh Your glory and Your majesty, may our hearts be drawn to worship You in Your splendor and drive away any complacency or or comfort or casualness about our worship. We need to see You. And Lord, we need to hear You. Teach. 
rebuke, correct, train, that we might be equipped for every good work. Lord, break us and glorify Yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to conclude with a, a final... You know, I think it's important to point out that Saul was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking Him. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Saul was saved by the sovereign grace of our seeking Savior. And now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.